All right, guys, welcome back to our teaching in the book of Genesis. Now, the last time we were here, we were in chapter 24 in dealing with how God provided a wife for Isaac. And now the two principal things that we saw was one provision of God, how God provided that which he had promised to Abraham, that is a seed and the continuation of that provision even extended into the seed himself, that is for Isaac. And we saw that in the expression of faith that Abraham had when he said, God will show you a wife for my son. That is, he was speaking to Eleazar, his servant. Now, the second thing that we also saw concerning a nature, an aspect of God was his sovereignty. Now, notice, even though there was no prophetic word from God, but through the eyes of faith, we can also we saw God sovereignly directing the occasion, God being involved when the servant left and the servant by faith, praying unto God, that's Eliezer, praying unto God and God directing his path in fulfilling his prayer, fulfilling that prayer. Show me the woman uh, who shall be my master's wife if she should give me a drink and give drink to my camels as well. And remember, he had 10 camels. But nevertheless, the sovereign hand of God also involved in that, in that indeed Rebecca was brought to the place at that very time. So we saw provision and we saw sovereignty that were involved in these things. Okay. All right. But nevertheless, now we move into chapter 25 and basically we're going to deal with three sections in chapter 25. We're going to deal with the death of Abraham, the seed, or should we say the generation told doth. We'll talk about that when we get into it, but the generation of Ishmael. And then finally, we're going to talk about Jacob and Esau the two sons of Isaac, which will be the key uh, figures as we move into this particular section of Genesis, concentrating on Jacob. Okay. But without any further ado, let's start Genesis 25 verse one. Now, Abraham took another wife whose name was Keturah. She bore to him Zimram, Jokshan, Medan, Midian, Ishbak, and Shua. Jokshan became the father of Sheba and Dedan, and the sons of Dedan were Ashurim and Letushim and Lumim. The sons of Midian were Ephoph, Epher, Hanok, Abida, Elda'ah. All these were the sons of Keturah. Okay, so now it begins to say that Abraham took another wife. This is after the death of Sarah. Now, we remember that Abraham was approximately 137 years old when Sarah had died. We saw that in Genesis chapter 23 in the death and burial of Sarah. And we know that Abraham was approximately 10 years older than Sarah, making him about 137. We also note that it was that Isaac was approximately 40 years of age when he married. So anywhere from around 137, and we know that Abraham lived up to be 175, and I'm very premature right now. But anywhere after 137, Abraham took a second wife by the name of Keturah. Okay. Now, even though she is here called his wife, another wife, Isha, another wife, Hebrew word here. However, it also calls her in first Chronicles. It also calls her a concubine. Now this 
dual labeling of Keturah, calling her both a wife as well as calling her a concubine, seems to suggest that although Keturah was a wife of Abraham, she did not have the full privileges of the wife. And, and, it, and that is, those privileges were reserved for Sarah, Abraham's first wife, who we know now is dead. Okay. So the idea is she is a wife, but it does not seem to suggest that she exercises the full privileges of a wife in every respect, like Sarah did. Those things were reserved for his first wife, Sarah. Okay. But nevertheless, it goes to talk about Abraham having other sons. We know Abraham has had two sons up to this point, Ishmael, his actually firstborn, and then Isaac, the son of promise. And we know that in accordance to Genesis chapter 22, Isaac was called by God, his only son. Now, the reason why Isaac was called the only son of Abraham was not that Isaac was the only son. Remember, he had two sons at that time, Ishmael as well as Isaac. But Isaac was the son of promise. And so therefore, since Isaac was the son of promise and not Genesis chapter 16, the son of Abraham's work. Remember, that's the son as Ishmael, Abraham trying to work it out himself through Hagar, the maidservant of, of uh, his wife, Sarah. The promised son is Isaac, the one through whom God and God alone gave him. So Isaac is called the only son. But nevertheless, we see now Abraham having in totality eight sons. Now, and the reason why the Bible is mentioning this is because it shows to prove the point that God makes, because these sons will become consider the progenitors like the heads. And so to speak, the progenitors of great family of people, the Arabian people, and allow me not to get into all of the details concerning these specific sons. But the whole point is they are the fathers of many other nations of people. And so thus this, these sons fulfill the promises that the promise that God gave to Abraham when he said that I will make you a father of many nations. Okay. And these sons came through his second wife, Keturah. Verse number five. Now, Abraham gave all that he had to Isaac, but to the sons of his concubines, Abraham gave gifts while he was still living and sent them away from his son, Isaac toward Isaac eastward to the land of the east. These are all the years of Abraham's life that he lived 175 years. Abraham breathed his last and died in a ripe old age, an old man and satisfied with life. And he was gathered to his people. Then his sons, Isaac and Ishmael, buried him in the cave of Machpelah in the field of Ephron, the son of Zohar, the Hittite facing Mamre, the field which Abraham purchased from the sons of Heth. There Abraham was buried with Sarah, his wife. It came about after the death of Abraham that God blessed his son, Isaac, and Isaac lived by Beer Lahoy Roy. Okay, so now we are wrapping up the life of Abraham. And so what we see is while Abraham was old and, and, and we can imagine anywhere from about 140 to 175. So near near the time when Abraham was beginning 
to, uh, he was getting old. No doubt he was sensing sooner or later he would die. Abraham made certain preparations. Now, the preparations that he made was the sons of his concubines, those that we previously named earlier, the sons of Keturah, Abraham gave gifts. And no doubt they were lavish gifts because Abraham was a man of great wealth. And so therefore, Abraham would give them flocks and herds. And so as he gave them their gifts individually, he sent them away to the east, away from Isaac. And then he gave the majority of his resources, the majority of his inheritance was given to Isaac. And so that's why it said, and he gave all that he had to Isaac. So Isaac got the predominant uh, bulk of Abraham's wealth. Now, the reason for this, that Abraham, first of all, he gave his sons gifts clearly as an act of love and sent them away. But the reason for the sending away of the brothers of Isaac was so, is so there would be no competition against Isaac or with Isaac in the land of promise. Remember, God had given the land of promise, the land of Canaan to Abraham and to his seed. That is that particular son that God would choose, that God would name, that God would give. And that son we know to be Isaac. So therefore, Isaac is the son of promise. And so now Abraham wisely, he wisely, in the same sense, like he sent Ishmael away. We saw that in chapter, I believe, was it 17? But in the same way he wisely sent Ishmael away, he also sends these sons away so that it would be clear Isaac and Isaac alone is the son of promise and therefore this land is his and his alone. Okay. And then we talked about how Abraham was 175 years old. He was good and old if we would say it that way. He was old when he died and they buried him in the same place that Abraham purchased for his wife, Sarah, the cave of Machpelah. Now, remember, and we're not going to get into the details earlier, but again, Abraham inherited. He did not inherit the promised land. The cave of Machpelah was the only property of Abraham in the land of promise. And this cave simply served as a down payment. That which God had promised to give him, God would also give him in fullness in the day to come. Now, I don't want to get into it, but this also speaks of resurrection of the dead. You say, how? How does it speak of resurrection of the dead? If God makes you a promise, God is bound by his own nature. What nature? That God is faithful. God is bound to, by his own nature to fulfill his promise. He promised to give Abraham the land of promise. Abraham did not receive the land of promise during his lifetime. He only received a down payment of that, the cave of Machpelah. Therefore, God is under obligation to raise Abraham from the dead in order that God may give or complete his promise. Okay, so that's what, that's what we're talking about here. But anyway, so that we won't get into all of that. So what happens? We see that Abraham's sons, Ishmael, his firstborn son, whom God, whom Abraham had sent away, rejoined once again with Isaac in the burial of their father. Now, I found this to be both beautiful and interesting in a way, because it seems to suggest that 
Isaac was still aware of Ishmael's presence. Remember, Ishmael was sent away. And these two boys, they are men now, I'm calling them boys. <laughs> but these two men have now come together again in this situation to bury their father. So he's aware, Isaac is aware of his brother's whereabouts and in the finality of their father in his final days since he died now, they have come back together to bury their father. This is a beautiful thing. Okay. And then we see Isaac once again dwelling. We saw that earlier in chapter 24 by Biel Lahore Roy. Now the significance of this well was, if you go back to Genesis chapter 16, it was the same well that God had appeared to Hagar, the servant. Remember Sarah's maid, Sarah's slave through whom Sarah was trying to bear children by Ishmael's mother. Okay. Go back and read that section if you've forgotten about it, but it's in Genesis chapter 16 and it was God who had appeared to Hagar and God spoke to Hagar at this particular point. And so we see that this point is a, this place has become somewhat of a special place. And the implication is it is at Be'er Lahoi Roi, the well of him who sees. It is at this particular place that one goes to hear and commune with God. We saw that in, in chapter 24, when uh, Isaac was seeming to go out to meditate at, at this particular point. And we'll also see that even continuation as Isaac dwells here. He dwells near a place where he can hear from God. But anyway, we'll talk about that as we work through these passages. All right. Verse number 12. Now we deal with a next told off. Remember when it says these are the generations, that's that Hebrew word told off. And basically it's giving simply an account. And if we had to simply say it in another way, what becomes of what becomes of. So when we talk about the told oath of Ishmael, what becomes of Ishmael, right? And what becomes of Ishmael are the 12 princes, the 12 descendants of Ishmael fulfilling the promise promises that God spoke concerning him in chapters 16 as well as 17 in chapter 16, how he would be a difficult man. His hand would be against his brothers and chapter 17, how God would make 12 princes who should come from Israel. The promise that he made to Abraham and expanding his seed through Ishmael. Okay. Verse number 12. Now these are the records of the generations of Ishmael, Abraham's son, whom Hagar, the Egyptian, Sarah's maid bore to him bore to Abraham. And these are the names of the sons of Ishmael by their names in the order of their birth. Nabaoth, the firstborn of Ishmael, Kedar and Abdeel, Mipsam and Mishma, Duma, Masa, Hadad and Tima, Jatur, Nafish and Kedamah. These are the sons of Ishmael and these are their names by their villages and by their camps, 12 princes, according to their tribes. These are the years of the life of Ishmael, 137 years. And he breathed his last and died and was gathered to his people. They settled from Havilah to Shur, which is east of Egypt. As one goes toward Assyria, he settled in defiance 
of all his relatives. Now, let's talk about this section again, as I've already told you, it's, it, it basically deals with what happens to Ishmael. And that's when it uses that term once again, what? Toldoth. What happens? What happens to Ishmael are his 12 sons, his 12 descendants. And these men are called princess because they become mighty men over tribes themselves. And this goes once again to fulfill the promise that God made to Abraham, Genesis chapter 17, that he would make of Ishmael uh, many nations of princes as well. Okay. And so this is simply a fulfillment of that. And then we see in verse number 17, how Ishmael lived to be 137 years old. Now, Ishmael didn't live a, a long time in comparison to his father, that is Abraham, 175 years, or even in comparison to his uh, brother, uh, Isaac here. I think Isaac lived to be something like 180 years old, which seems to suggest Israel's rough and rugged life. And so therefore he didn't live a long time, but nevertheless, he lived to be 137 years old. And then it uses that phrase gathered to his people. Now, I don't want to deal a lot in this phrase. I really think you can do a good research study in this phrase alone, but clearly the idea is, and he died. He gathered to his people. Okay. But it also suggests in the gathering to his people, he is not gathering to those who no, who no longer exist. He is gathering to those who still exist. So the point is, it speaks of a continuation of life. That is, even though the flesh has been shedded, even though the physical body is now dead. There is a continuation of life. And therefore, what do we see here? We see Ishmael continuing his life in another place. We know to be Sheol or the grave, the underworld, the place of departed spirits. He is simply continuing life with his people. Okay. So it, it deals with two, two things for the most part. Life has discontinued in the flesh, but life continues in another place in the grave in Sheol. All right. And then it talks about how the descendants of Ishmael settled east of Egypt. All right. And that's basically dealing with the told off of that statement. Now we're going to get into that same uh, idea told off generations of Isaac, what becomes of Isaac. And for the most part, the concentration on this section all the way up to, I think maybe 35, I'm not absolutely certain is dealing or concentrating on Jacob, Jacob. Now it's going to talk about Isaac and we're going to talk about some of the issues concerning Isaac, but the primary emphasis of concentration will be Jacob who will be the promised seed of Isaac himself. Okay. From Abraham, Abraham's promised seed, Isaac, Isaac's promised seed, Jacob. All right. And when we say promised seed, it simply means the one through whom God will fulfill the promises that he made to Abraham in Genesis chapter 12, which is ultimately to bring the Messiah through one to whom to bring the Messiah through and give Abraham this particular people. 
which we know to be the Jewish people, okay, or Israel. 19. Now, these are the records of the generations of Isaac, Abraham's son. Abraham became the father of Isaac. Isaac was 40 years old when he took, when he, when he took Rebekah, the daughter of Bethuel, the Aramean of Padanaram, sister of Laban, the Aramean, to be his wife. Isaac prayed to the Lord on behalf of his wife because she was barren. And the Lord answered him and Rebekah, his wife, conceived. But the children struggled together within her. And she said, if it is so, why then am I this way? So she went to inquire of the Lord. The Lord said to her, two nations are in your womb and two peoples will be separated from your body. And one people shall be stronger than the other and the older shall serve the younger. And when her days, when her days to be delivered were fulfilled, behold, there were twins in her womb. So now let me simply stop right here. Stop right here. So now we move into, remember, the account of Isaac, the told off. What happens of Isaac? It rehearses once again the lineage up to this point. Isaac's father is Abraham. And then it tells us once again what Genesis chapter four, 24 told us. When Isaac was approximately 24 years of age, he took a wife and that was Rebekah. But then we come into a problem a similar problem that we had with the wife of Abraham, Sarah. Remember, Sarah did not conceive a child until she was approximately 90 years of age. Now here we have a similar thing according with the wife of Isaac. She also too is barren. Now there are so many wonderful things that we can talk about here. And so remember, okay, here's the thing that I want you to say so you'll get it. Here's what you would naturally expect in the same way that no doubt Abraham expected. When God called him in chapter 12 and told him that he would give him a seed, no doubt Abraham expected in short time he would have a son, no doubt. But it took 25 years before God actually fulfilled his promise. That's a long time. Plus, you add the fact that Abraham was already 75 years old. He was an old man. So Abraham had to do what in all of God's dealing with Abraham? What do we see? What do we learn? Abraham himself had to learn to trust God. Abraham himself, even though God would fulfill his promise, God would do that. God would not fulfill his promise to Abraham apart from Abraham's faith. So faith had to work in conjunction with the promises of God. You see that Abraham had to believe. All right. Same thing. Now, when we turn to his son, Isaac, no doubt he had been told he is the son of promise and that God would give him a seed and continuation of that promise that he made to Abraham. Quite naturally, Isaac is expecting seed, but nevertheless, Isaac must learn the same lesson his father learned. Now, remember, we know the Bible told us Isaac was married at 40 years of age. Now, to, I have to be premature in order to make this point. Uh, what is it? Verse number 26. We hadn't got there yet. Isaac will actually have a son at the age of 60 years old, 20 years. 
It almost took as long as Abraham. Here's the point that I'm making. Same lesson that was learned from Abraham is the same lesson Isaac must learn himself. God indeed will fulfill his promises to you, but God works through faith. Isaac must therefore have faith. Okay. And so that's basically what we see in chapter 21. Not only a questioning of Isaac concerning, you know, what's going on? Why am I not having the promised seed, but a development of his faith. All right. So he prays that his wife should have children. And so therefore the Lord answered his prayer. Beauty of verse 21. No doubt Isaac was waiting and waiting. And then he prayed the way the verse is constructed. It seemed that there was an immediate answer to prayer. But when we look into his father's life, it was it wasn't immediate. The assumption here is this, even as it was not immediate in the life of Abraham, it is not immediate in the life of Isaac either. Faith takes time. Faith takes experience. Faith must develop. But nevertheless, God did answer his prayer and God did in the answering of Isaac's prayer kept his own word. All right. So when his wife finally got pregnant, then she noticed something unusual. So pregnancy was supposed to be a blessing. That's what you have to see here. If this is the great promise seed of God, what in the world is wrong? So she experienced some sort of tumult because there were two children in her womb fighting, struggling, which will be an indication of these two boys, their two natures, the nations that will come from each of them is an indication of what their futures would be like. But nevertheless, this is supposed to be a blessing. This seed inside of me thinks Rebecca, but my pregnancy is really abnormal and seems like something is going wrong. So she goes to inquire of God, what's wrong? God tells her she's pregnant with twins. He styles it in a futuristic sense. Each son being representative, a progenitor, being representative of the two nations. Two nations are in your womb. We know these nations will come from Jacob, Israel, Esau, the Edomites. Okay, and these nations, the Israelites and Edomites, will struggle and never be at peace with one another. It will always be a contentious relationship. And so God gives her this particular prophecy, ultimately saying he gives, he says, and, and the elder shall serve the younger. Now you bring that in the context of the birthright situation, which we'll see at the end of this chapter, the birthright, makes such a one, whoever has the birthright, the eldest one of the family, the one through whom becomes both the priest of the family. That is, he is the spiritual leader of the family as well as the leader of the family as a whole, who has the majority of the wealth of the father. You got it. He is a pre, it has a both religious side priest of the family. And it also has a material side the leader and the one who receives the greater wealth from the father. All right. And so this is what it means by one shall serve the older, the older, because naturally 
the birthright is always given to the eldest son, to the one who was born first. Now, we know in this text, as we're going to talk about, Esau will be born first, but it won't be Esau who attains, who receives the birthright. And that's what it means. Elder Esau shall serve the younger Jacob. Because why? Jacob is the elect one of God. And we see Paul talking about this also in the book of Roman, how God sovereignly chooses whom he wills. Okay. Uh, let's do 24. When her days, when her days to be delivered were fulfilled, behold, there were indeed twins in her womb. Now the first came forth red all over like a hairy garment. They named him Esau. Afterward, his brother came forth with his hand holding on to Esau's heel. So his name was called Jacob. And Isaac was 60 years old when she gave birth to them. When the boys grew up, Esau became a skillful hunter, man of the field. But Jacob was a peaceful man living in tents. Let me stop there. So finally, she gives birth to the two boys. And then there's a description of the two boys that speaks unto their natures and their futures as well. First one comes out red all over Esau. Esau is the firstborn and he comes out and they call him red. And the name red is of Adami, Adami, which literally means red. And he was hairy all over. And so therefore, then the second boy comes out. We know the name Jacob, but he comes out in a strange way, grabbing the heel of his brother. Now, this is an indication of the struggle, even from the womb between these two boys. You see it, a physical struggle, not the physical so much as fight, but indicating the spiritual struggle. And it will be a physical struggle as well as we move down through time even to the point where Esau will be determined to kill his own brother. But nevertheless, it speaks of Jacob. And, and the whole idea is one who catches the heel. That's the meaning of his name or a supplanter. It speaks of a trickster, somewhat of a deceiver. And it shows the cunningness of Jacob, how he is willing to do whatever he can do in order to attain uh, 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 the blessing. We know that's going to come at the very end. So the whole idea is it speaks to the nature of these two boys. Okay. And so we see Esau grew up as a man's man. Esau grew up as a skillful hunter and the man of the field. And it says that Jacob grew up. Some understand this as a household man or as a timid man. Now the word that is used here in Hebrew is Tom. It could mean without blemish. It could mean perfect or complete, or it could mean a settled man, that idea. So it seems to suggest when it says uh, Jacob grew up as more of a homie and a complete man dwelling in tents. All right. Now, let's get to 28. Now, Isaac loved Esau because he had a taste for game, but Rebekah loved Jacob. When Jacob had cooked stew, Esau came in from the field and he was famished. And Esau said to Jacob, 
Please let me have a swallow of that red stuff there, for I am famished. Therefore, his name is called Edom. But Jacob said, first, sell me your birthright. Esau said, behold, I'm about to die. So of what use then is the birthright to me? And Jacob said, first, swear to me. So he swore to him and sold his birthright to Jacob. Then Jacob gave Esau bread and lentil stew, and he ate and drank and rose and went on his way. Thus, Esau despised his birthright. All right. So now we continue. Notice how even though we're talking about uh, Isaac's told off the concentration on Jacob and Esau ending on Jacob. But nevertheless, so it says what? There is a somewhat of a favoritism in the two boys. Not really a good thing. And the Bible is not talking about it from the perspective of good nor evil. It is just simply giving a statement of fact. Isaac was predisposed, favored Esau because Isaac liked to eat that food that Esau would hunt and bring back. But Rachel, because Jacob was a man dwelling in tents, she began to favor uh, Jacob instead. Okay, and so one day, so the Bible takes us to a particular occasion. This occasion highlights that Jacob grabbing the heel of Esau, his brother. And this is what it does. All centered around the birthright, because here's where we are coming from. Remember the prophecy that God gave to uh, Rebecca, the mother, and the elder shall serve the younger. It centers around that. Now, even though, let me say this now. Even though the birthright is given to Jacob by God, what Jacob is doing here to attain the birthright, to get the birthright is not right. Okay, so let me say that God is not sanctioning. He is not. And if I could scream it, I would scream it. He is not sanctioning Jacob's use his is not he's not tricking his brother, but 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 he is manipulating. He's manipulating his brother. God is not sanctioning that. All right. That's number one. Number two, you cannot attain the spiritual blessings that God can give through human acts. And that's what Jacob is doing. Jacob is trying to maneuver his way. And you'll see that as we talk about Jacob all throughout this book. Jacob is always scheming, trying to figure out, trying to get ahead, trying to make things better for himself instead of relying on God. You got it. My point, this situation of what Jacob is doing is not accepted by God and by what he did, even though the birthright per se is sold by Esau, the birthright can only be given by God. You got it. Only God can give the birthright. So even in all of this mess, Jacob is not so much as attaining it. He will attain it when God blesses him later on through the blessings of his father. And now he attains the birthright and not because of this. It's not deceptive act, but this manipulative act. But let me talk about it. They Esau is out. The great hunter. Didn't get anything that is almost comical. 
Esau, the great hunter, didn't get anything that day. So he came into the tent where his brother was cooking some lentil stew. When Esau saw Jacob cooking, there's a play on word. He said, give me some of that red stuff that you have in that pot. He didn't even call it lentil stew. The color of it indeed was red. But remember, Esau's name means red. So we see basically a play on words here. Give me some of that red there. And therefore, Esau is called red. That's the play on name. But when he asked for that, Jacob, looking for an opportunity, no doubt, sought this as a time for that. He could get the birthright. And so he said, if you give me your birthright this day, then I'll give you some of this stew to eat. Now we begin to see as the book of Hebrews, I believe it's chapter 12, when it calls him an immoral person and, and a vain person. Uh, uh, we see the vanity and disregard of spiritual things in the person of Esau. We see the coarseness of Esau, the worldliness of Esau. He was willing to give up the birthright simply for a pot of beans. We see the exaggeration in his character. I'm about to die. Do you not know? It takes a long time for a person to die of hunger. 30, 40 days, even longer for a person to literally die of hunger if they're in decent health. Okay? He wasn't about to die. But he exaggerated the situation just so he can get something to fulfill his flesh. Okay. Brings us to that. It talks about the character of Esau, a person who looks to satisfy the flesh. And that's an, all of this is involved in this contract for the birthright. Jacob, one who regards the thing that are spiritual more than just the flesh. So all of this is kind of being hashed out right here. But nevertheless, Esau, a profane person sold one of the most invaluable things that a man could have, the birthright. And remember, the birthright entailed two things, priest of the family as well as leader of the family, which will have the greater inheritance of the father. Now, even though we see here uh, Esau selling his birthright, he really wasn't selling all of the birthright. He, he didn't mind throwing into the garbage that spiritual priesthood is part of the birthright. But what he was holding, and we'll see that later on, I think it's probably chapter 27, he was holding on to the birthright of the inheritance because later on, he will come seeking his father Isaac to bless him. He's not concerned with that priestly blessing, He's concerned with the blessing of material wealth, okay, which sets him apart from Jacob. All right, guys, we're going to stop right here. The next time we come back, we begin to concentrate more on Isaac and the things that Isaac will do in the land of Canaan. All right, see you next time.